Welcome to Reverb, everyone. I am Calvin Pollock, and I'm joined by my co-producer and co-host, Alex Helberg. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And also our co-producer and co-host, Sophie Wadzak. Hello. And we are meeting today, uh, not in the best of circumstances, politically, socially, public health-wise. There's a lot going on that's terrible and terrifying. And so we, we wanted to check in because we haven't done a show since our great Christmas special about the Elf on the Shelf. And since then, some very naughty stuff happened at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, <laughs> not, to, so. not to... Um, Put it in too light of terms, but they waited uh, until after Christmas to do they, it. At true. least they waited until strategic. after Christmas. We we appreciate that. But yeah, we wanted to talk about some rhetorical and political aspects of the January sixth Capitol attacks. Right now, I'm just going to call them attacks, and I want to throw it to Alex to talk about kind of the first subtopic within this that relates to what should we call what happened. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that, I mean, there's already been a lot of discourse on this question, whether you've been online or offline. I gratefully have uh, have tried to avoid uh, trying to circulate in social media spheres for all of this. But I think that it's it is an important question to say, what should we call this? Should this event be called a coup, an insurrection, a riot or just a gathering Um, if we're if we want to use more benign terms? I think I mean, from a rhetorical perspective, you know, one of the things that we take as kind of a basic premise from our discipline is that what we call an event, the rhetoric that we use to define an event or a situation, is going to inherently influence the way that further rhetoric and further uh, policy decisions and actions are used to justify and warrant certain outcomes. So I think that it is important for us to, it's not just a pedantic uh, sort of war of words over uh, what this should be called. I think right now, the word that I'm hearing a lot in the news is that this is being called a coup or an insurrection. Those seem to be like the two dominant terms that are being thrown around to describe what happened in Washington, D.C. I don't think we really have to give too much context uh, for what happened just because it's pretty ubiquitous right now. But I do want to contextualize at least first the way that I would answer this with a short anecdote. So when I was in college, uh, I think this was back in 2011, I was back in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and the Green Bay Packers were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in the Super Bowl that year. It was another dark uh, January day where uh, a football game <laughs> was happening and I wasn't paying attention to it until all of a sudden you know if for those of you familiar with football and who wins the Super Bowl every year the Packers did win that year and lacrosse Wisconsin kind of erupted in this you know I was living close to the university campus so there was this whole big massive crowd of drunk college students who were kind of spilling out into the streets and right down the street from my apartment which was on West Avenue kind of one of the main veins of the city so I took a video camera out there and I recorded some of the things that the students were doing, which was mainly just dancing around, kind of having a big block party until it got to the point where, you know, the cops had blocked off the street they started to kind of start encroaching on the partiers, the sort of drunk revelry that was going on in the middle of this street. And the students, the students in the crowd started to kind of like advance on the police uh, to the point where, you know, the cops were staying in their cars, but the mob was sort of like advancing on the police cars to the point where they all of a sudden like kicked their cars into reverse and people started chasing the cops down the street. 
of course, what then happened, you know, as people were kind of, you know, in their green and yellow jerseys dancing around and uh, around these cop cars, all of a sudden the cops got out of the car and everybody immediately darted back. And so that was that was kind of the end of it. <laughs> the police just had to get out of their cars in order for people to stand down. Um, of course. So anyway, I uploaded a the, the whole point of the story is I uploaded a video of this happening to YouTube. And this was pretty much the closest I ever came to viral uh, until reverb, of course, uh, that I came to getting virality. Viral, virality. Uh, I think right now this stands at just shy of 40,000 views on YouTube. Uh, so it made kind of a big splash at the time. But one of the first comments uh, that you'll see if you scroll back down far enough is yeah, I just called it something like lacrosse Packer fans celebrate in the street you know after super bowl win and one of my friends commented on there alex you should change this video to say packer fan riot this thing could go viral and sure enough i changed the video title to say packer fan riot and all of a sudden it started getting hits left and right and there were copycat videos that started calling themselves packer fan riot and i got contacted by news organizations who wanted to use my footage in their coverage of the event so my point in all of this is to say that what happened that I documented on film was not a riot. Um, I think by any objective measure, it would not be considered to be a riot. And there were people in the comments down in that video having an argument about this was not a riot. These were, you know, just partying college kids. And I feel kind of similarly about the events that happened at Capitol Hill. I think that the use of a word like coup or insurrection or something that is charged with a little bit more sort of like political radicalism and I guess it kind of presumes a bit more like preparation and planning is giving these people a little bit too much credit. And we can discuss that perhaps, but my personal take here is that a coup and an insurrection is a little bit too far for what to call this. I think that the more appropriate term would, in this case, actually be riots. But are you implying that there was no forethought or planning? Because it seems well, like there has. Oh, cer okay, certainly, certainly. But I guess not on the scale of being like, you know, when we think about a coup, this is an overthrow of a government, right? Like mm -hmm. this is like literally taking the existing state power and replacing it with like a military government or something like that. I don't think that we can presume that level of coordination for mm -hmm. the people that like certainly they organized a rally. Certainly they all decided together to march on the Capitol building. I don't think that there was ever any intention to actually like overthrow the government and if there was they had like no means or like organizational capacity to do so sure so more like a demonstration you would say than yeah than like yeah a it was a demonstration turned riot i think would be my answer to this question of what should we call this well, one, one thing that I've been thinking about is that I kind of think the modifier we use is actually almost more important than the noun, if that makes sense. I think the, the modifier right wing needs to be included, or even GOP needs to be included, because what matters to me is less the nature of the act than the political content of the act. I think when you look at the political content of it, that's where the real danger and the real horror of it is. This was overtly right-wing, bordering on fascist on the part of many of the participants in it. It was planned on far-right social media platforms. And 
was aided and abetted by GOP members of Congress. And so that's where I think maybe I would push back a little bit on the idea that this wasn't pre-planned or it wasn't organized. I think it was kind of a popular front. It was a right-wing popular front in the sense that there were many overlapping groups who showed up there. And some among them, I think, had done a lot of pre-planning and had specific like mission objectives that they were carrying out. They may not have expected or even planned to be able to change the character of the government uh, as a result of it, but it was intended to create enough chaos that they wouldn't be able to certify the election. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. And at that point, if they can't certify the election, it starts to take on some of the content of a coup because a coup can also just be you install a different candidate or you, you don't allow a particular duly elected official to take office. It doesn't necessarily mean you change from democratic rule to military rule. Oh, totally. But I guess my, my only response to that would be that, I mean, like as far as whatever the goals were, this whole event actually hastened the certification of the vote. Like it happened, I think probably with less pushback than it otherwise would have because you saw so many GOP legislators. I mean, some of them like Josh Hawley obviously doubled down, but you also saw some people just Lindsey Graham, for example, basically like disavowed it completely right out of the gate. I think that there probably was, I mean, what we were seeing from a lot of Republicans right now, especially, you know, the 10 GOP Congress people who turned against the party line and decided to vote to impeach Trump is, you know, this is actually having like a blowback effect on the GOP in a way that is actually quite negative for what they were trying to do. So, I mean, I want to say you played yourself, but, you know, that sounds like too light well, yeah, but, uh, of a way I mean, of treating it. A failed coup is still a coup, though, is it not? I mean, the coup that the U.S. attempted in Bolivia and Venezuela were <laughs> extremely ham-fisted, extremely flubbed, but they were still intended to install a candidate who didn't actually win the election in the seat of power. Well, I just wonder, like, is a coup, like, does it describe the act or the result, right? Like, power was not seized, so... Do we want to call it an attempted coup? Like, that's fine. But I don't know if right. we can call it a coup if it didn't. And I think, Alex, what you're saying, too, is that, like, if they were going for a coup, like seizing power, it doesn't seem like beyond just sort of preventing the certification of the vote. It doesn't seem like there was a lot after that. Like, there wasn't like, OK, first we'll do the coup and then we'll blah, 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 blah. Like, or, or first we'll, you know, storm the Capitol and then what? Like, it seems to have stopped there so far, but the month is not over. Absolutely. And I, well, I, and I guess part of my, yeah, I think that intention matters here. And so I, I think that, you know, exploring more of like what Calvin was saying, like some people clearly did have mission objectives for, you know, if they had all had a more coherent objective to like, we're going to occupy the, the chambers of Congress in order to, you know, in order to stall this out basically, but they weren't even able to do that. So, I mean, and even the people who did, go into the halls of Congress and, you know, posed for selfies at the at the uh, the podium and everything like that. It didn't seem like there was, I guess I, I just didn't see that level of coordination where I could say that this is like legitimately a, not even really an attempt. But, but I also wanted to just make a broader point too about how, again, the sort of ongoing rhetorical influence of what we call an event is going to influence future policy measures 
and I think that this is kind of the other part of this definitional question is what policy response is warranted depending on what we call this. So if it is, in fact, a fascist coup, if it is, as some other people have called it, an act of domestic terrorism, for example, which we can maybe talk about the validity of that framing as yeah, well. Uh, you know, what is being proposed right now by the, you know, president-elect Biden and the incoming administration is a further creation of new domestic terror laws, which I am immediately sort of averse to because, for example, the House on Un-American Activities was originally created at, you know, under the veneer of cracking down on German fascist sympathizers in the lead up to World War II. What it eventually ended up being used for was to prosecute the left. So I guess I'm I'm sort of immediately I, I don't want to jump to calling this something too extreme when really, I mean, it kind of it, it looks pretty goofy. Like I wasn't I was stressed out about it for like a few minutes until I saw like who was there and what they were actually doing. And then it was kind of like, oh, this is just Americans being, yeah. <laughs> being like, just like, these are tourists. Pretty late. Yeah, tourists. That was the vibe I got, it seemed. And I saw somebody tweeted, I can't remember who or exactly how they said it, but like, okay, you guys did it. You got into the Capitol. You got into Pelosi's office. And the best thing you could think of was to pretend you were making calls on her phone. Like, right. that showed her. Like, it just seems like, yeah, not very well planned, not very serious. And just sort of a spectacle. Like, I, you know, I close my eyes and I see that picture of the dude with like the viking hat and the oh yes flag, the shaman. face paint like <laughs> it's very yeah goofy like americans acting a fool yeah i mean i don't know i feel feel odd about this because i agree with all of that it is ridiculous it was a spectacle but like that's how white supremacy operates go back and and look at photographs of lynchings they look nearly identical to the photographs that came out of this event. And so I think there's a risk in um, like downplaying it or poo-pooing it, especially as white people, um, uh, because it looks ridiculous. I think the the spectacle of it, the ridiculous of it,ness of it doesn't detract from its power at all. In fact, that, that allows it to hide in plain sight as like something that's funny, as something that's goofy. Oh, this president is so goofy, like when he's killed 400,000 people from COVID. Yeah. Well, it does encourage um, I, the, like, the explanation, like, oh, they were just blowing off steam or whatever, like, right. similar to, like, football riots, right? Like, oh, they're just wearing face paint and knocking things over, or no, you know, and then it gets lumped in with that same kind of a very American spectacle of people just, like, brawling because of, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that that kind of opens up an, an, a way to sort of explain it away that's not okay. Yeah, and I actually have a source to bring in here that I I read sort of preparing for this. This was thankfully something that Ben Williams, co-host, co-producer, sent to me. It's called From Lynchings to the Capital, Racism and the Violence of Revelry by Erica Fretwell. And um, just read like a short passage from it that kind of touches on this question where Fretwell writes, quote, The braiding of entertainment and violence that occurs when white people riot is the twisted line that leads from 19th century lynching to the insurrection. Lynching photographs teach us that today's images of the failed coup, on the one hand clownish, on the other terrifying, are not dissonant. In reality, they go hand in hand. Enjoyment is not a byproduct, but a central feature of white people's violence towards black people and, more broadly, black political power. And just, unquote, just to 
stick something in here. I think it's it's important to contextualize. Like this coup happened the very day that uh, the first black senator from the South was like announced as the victor in the Georgia elections. I think that's it's there's there's no coincidence that there was this level of intense rioting following like a massively significant event in racial politics like that. So just to go back real quick, quote. Riot and revelry are conjoined twins sharing a common organ, white supremacy. When we look at these photographs through the lens of white mob violence in the U.S., they start to collapse into each other, becoming indistinguishable. In the U.S., spectacles of racial violence make fun and terror mutually constitutive. They are not opposites, but rather two sides of the same coin. In lynching photographs, the horrific murder of a black man and the electric gaiety of the white murderers reinforce each other. Likewise, Johnson and Munchell, two of the rioters from January 6th, the clown and the militiaman exist for each other. They are the same rioter, just dressed in different clothes. Jouissance is central to the operations of white supremacist violence, unquote. Yeah, that resonates. And I do think this is, I was going to say earlier, that like the fact that it was so goofy does not, as you said, it does not make it less scary. Like this idea of like a, you know, clowns in horror films right like there's something very terrifying about somebody who is like delighting in the fear of other people which i think is exactly what what we saw and it again speaks to you know that sense that you can tell like those people did not think that really anything was going to happen to them like there's that sense of like being a white person in a mob right and like and, and and fashioning it after sort of aesthetically it was very similar to a lot of the gatherings i'll say very loosely that we see after just sports games like it looks like that and i think it's like absolute bullshit that like people white people have had impunity for doing that you know for decades now but uh yeah it makes it scarier to know that like these people who are dressed like idiots have deadly weapons is a terrifying thought and yeah and just the 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 final thing i wanted to throw in on like my case for why we may want to call it a coup and we may want to call it a fascist coup and we can talk about domestic terrorism in one second because I think we need to. But the the number of off-duty cops who were there, the number of military, either active duty or veterans who were there, the number of like state GOP politicians. So this was a, a riot, if you want to call it a riot, that included many of the most powerful white supremacist race-making institutions in this country. And so I think when you put all of that together, it starts to look less like this kind of orgy of random, undirected energy and more like the political content becomes clearer. Sure. And I, I, I just want to say, to, like, I don't disagree with anything that anything that was just brought in here either. I guess the, the fear that I still have is that in terms of like the U.S. state's response to to anything like this, I mean, there there's a line to be tread between like taking a threat seriously, quote unquote, and giving it a power that giving it more power in other people's minds. Right. There was there was discourse around the Nashville Christmas bombing that was talking about, like, why are people not making a bigger deal out of this? Why are people not talking more about the fact that a bomb that was set off in the middle of downtown Nashville, like leveled a whole city block and everything and like. 
there were there were some people who I saw chiming in basically saying like there is a reason why like there there is like a media blackout on this because they don't want copycats. They don't want to like give this person power by, you know, they know that they're going to get attention for this and they know that their message is going to spread as a result. So I think that it's still it's still important to like take this seriously, but I guess my Still overriding concern here is that by giving this a sort of legitimizing title like a coup, we are by proxy kind of granting some undue power to what these people were actually doing when really, I mean, it's clear that they they weren't exercising power other than just like kind of a symbolic, like, look at what we can do with impunity. We're not actually going to affect material structures at all. But, you know, we are going to give this image of of a a, a powerful uh, right wing. And I guess, again, my worry is that we legitimize that sort of discourse power and that fear power that they have by calling this a coup and, and a fascist coup. Yeah, I'm just to bring back in the domestic terrorism conversation, I wanted to add that, so the example of the House on American Activities Committee is one thing, but we can also just look at the post 9-11 terror statutes yes. and surveillance programs and policies. They virtually all ended up targeting the left or targeting groups and activities that have nothing to do with terrorism, properly defined or uh, defined, tr- define, like, based on traditional definitions right. of, of, you know, non-state terror groups. And, and so my, my argument would be, why can't we just use the existing statutes? I mean, I personally think this, those statutes should be abolished or should be dramatically reformed, but it makes no sense to me that we need to institute new domestic terrorism statutes when the state currently has massive power to, uh, surveil for terrorism, and as we've seen, like they picked up like sixty of the of the rioters, you know, within a few days. So they're able to move really quickly. the The problem has been that they prioritize like Muslim groups and African American protest groups instead of white supremacist terrorism, which is the by far the largest domestic terror threat. Yeah, absolutely. I I have trouble even imagining what expansion of the current like carceral powers and the sort of deep states like surveillance powers there even could be in order to better quote unquote protect our citizenry from from a threat like this so the label of terrorism feels like one that is like fundamentally kind of a an ideograph that should be done away with just because of how much horrible baggage it has from the post 9-11 years how it has essentially always been used to like gin up fear and acquiescence in the wake of a tragedy in a way that unduly expands state carceral and surveillance powers so i am i'm averse to calling it that but i i mean do do either of you have any idea like what could be included in like an expansion of you know anti-domestic terror laws i just don't see how it would be advantageous to like what's so tricky about this is that like you know saying something's terrorism sort of if we're just talking about like in the minds of the american people right it like others it to make it seem like these are outsiders that are coming into you know to terrorize but when we've seen you know more and more evidence is being shown all the time like the heavy overlap between like the group that did the coup or whatever and the people who sensibly would be the ones cracking down on it if it were to happen again like that's 
pretty tricky, right? Like it doesn't, it does, it, it seems like, oh, we've got a terrorism problem, but that's not, that's not us. That's not the police. That's not, but how many police officers were there and how many police officers didn't stop it? And how many police officers gave, like there was an article that I read. I wish I could keep track of these better, but like one was like, oh, they were looking for Chuck Schumer's office and a police officer pointed them in the right direction, but they couldn't find it. Right. Like a police officer did yeah. what? Like, okay. Yeah, no, there, there needs to be a major investigation into the Capitol police's yes. role in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I was, I was going to say something similar. So if you like, I mean, as, as Alex was just saying, Terror is a negative ideograph, so it defines who we are not. But, you know, if we want to actually take this seriously, I think what needs to happen is, like, very targeted and strategic political reform. We need to, like, I mean, and I don't know how that happens, but, like, the GOP's connection to this needs to be determined and, like, any Congress members who aided and abetted the attack need to be expelled and hopefully that would produce enough change in the party that like that, I mean, that could reduce some of this in the long term as well. Like, I think if you call it terrorism, it implies that, yeah, there's some othered enemy that we can sort of declare war on and destroy. Right. But I think it, it the call is coming from inside the House. We need police reform, military reform and like reform of the Republican Party. Exactly. And, and I fear that you know, what we're going to be given in response is just similar to, you know, when the police overstep their reach or mess something up or, I don't know, kill somebody innocent when they shouldn't have, right? The response is often to bump up police budgets to like make sure they have all the resources they needed because they were caught. I've already seen so many people, you know, on Facebook especially being like, well, the police were caught unprepared. Like, no, they were not. Like, how many how much they were prepared they were extremely prepared to help or uh, you know at least not to stop it and like i i just i feel like you know it's akin to when these sorts of things happen all the time right not necessarily storming the capital but bad things that happen and then people will say this is not america you know like anytime you see an example of white supremacy being you know exercised to the you know disadvantage of of other people this isn't america yeah, it is America. So like, again, it's just this effort to like, make sure that like, well, it happened, and it was terrible, but it wasn't us. And we need to figure out a way to get rid of those people who came here just and and, you know, when people say like, oh, they bust in protesters or always this push to like, make it seem like it was an outsider. That was the perpetrator and that we can just crack down on that other person, which just does not reflect the reality of the situation. Absolutely. That that issue of otherness, I think, is so is is what is kind of that that's what leads me away from imagining there could be any feasible way of implementing a sort of like domestic terror, I guess, like policing program, because we're talking the the enforcers of this are white supremacist institutions. Uh, they you know, if we're asking the police, the FBI, the CIA, whoever else to be investigating this, they, they have been doing the work of institutionalized white supremacy for all of America's history. So you can't just give them a new direction of like marching orders and say actually the terrorists are white people now because that's that's against the source code right like the 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 system is not built to process that kind of otherness it's just it it won't it wouldn't work um i think on a fundamental level agreed agreed yeah 
Yeah. And we can, I, I mean, I think as far as like policy prescriptions go, I mean, I think we can maybe imagine some, I, I have some thoughts on this, but it's more in response to, I think what, what Calvin, you wanted to talk with us about too, which is sort of the, the increasing fallout from, from what happened after the events on January 6th. Back then they napped on me. Now they all just act on me. Now I'm out there all on me. Put a lot of Snapchats on me. I ain't got no Snapchat home. I think it's too personal. That's what I got Twitter for. Instagram, I'm back, yo. Like flex on you haters. Hi, haters. This yeah, is my so world. We can shift into that now. I wanted to talk about this question of, you know, what are the political, and I guess if you think about, like, public sphere implications of Twitter banning the president's account. And this has generated a lot of debate. A lot of people who you would expect to be mad about it, who are nevertheless on the left or on the liberal side of the spectrum, are mad about it or concerned about it. I include people like Glenn Greenwald, who has said that this is an example of you know, tech companies having impunity to make political decisions without having to really justify those decisions or experience oversight for those decisions. And I guess I can lay out my my take on it, and then we can open it up. I'm really curious to hear what both of you have to say. But like for me, I, I think of this as kind of a, a culmination of a lot of stuff that has happened over the past few years as social media has become so central to how we do politics in this country. I think if you look back at the 2016 election, social media was a massive talking point in the election. There was the Russiagate scandal. There was Cambridge Analytica. Basically, uh, the public and especially the liberal media became very concerned about tech companies' role in potentially propping up Trump, like helping Trump get elected. And this led to a lot of reforms in the tech companies and how they deliver content. Facebook, Twitter, and other major social media companies started enforcing their terms of service a lot more strictly. And so they did remove a number of accounts. This kind of accelerated after 2017 when the Unite the Right protests happened in Charlottesville. A lot of fascist and white supremacist accounts were shut down on major platforms. And then what started to happen is there was almost an overcorrection in the other direction. A lot of leftist accounts were shut down as well. And this has continued up until the present day. In fact, like in the last election, there's evidence that Facebook, I found this BuzzFeed story, Facebook cut traffic to liberal pages before election. Beginning in early October, the pages occupied Democrats, the other 98%, and being liberal, which collectively have more than 18.5 million followers, experienced significant declines in their reach. So like fewer shares, reactions and comments and Facebook, like despite the fact that there is a kind of conservative talking point that the tech companies are run by liberals and that they're biased against conservatives, Peter Thiel is on the board of Facebook. There was a study done that found that the organization that Facebook employees donate to the most is actually the Republican National Committee. So the GOP has serious connections to Facebook. Twitter does seem to be less GOP dominated, but as I said, like thousands of leftist accounts were deplatformed from Twitter over the past four years. And so this is not something that has been particularly targeted at the right. And so all of this, of course, culminated in 
Twitter banning Trump. And I wanted to read a little bit from Twitter's own justification for banning Trump. So there were two particular tweets that caused Twitter to, to ban Trump's account. So this is what they say about those tweets. Quote, we assess the two tweets referenced above under our glorification of violence policy, which aims to prevent the glorification of violence that could inspire others to replicate violent acts and determined that they were highly likely to encourage and inspire people to replicate the criminal acts that took place at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. And so then they kind of explain how each of the tweets that that they chose as the red line glorified violence. And so they conclude by saying, as such, our determination is that the two tweets above are likely to inspire others to replicate the violent acts that took place and that there are multiple indicators that they are being received and understood as encouragement to do so, unquote. So they they not only were looking at the content of the tweets, but also how they were being received by users. And then the New York Times shortly after this reported, along with the Washington Post, that there was a petition circulated within Twitter that garnered signatures from hundreds of employees that led to this decision being made. So it wasn't just like a deductive, logical application of the policy. This was very much an action that was called for by the workers at Twitter. And so my take is that this was a a, a minor, very minor victory against propaganda. That, that's my, my take on this. For the, the president having a Twitter account is not the same as, as anyone on this call having a Twitter account. It is primarily a mouthpiece for him to put out an official message. And he has a million channels to do that. Right. Why, if if there are rules under the terms of service of these platforms that seem to be violated by like the most powerful person in the world, why should he get impunity to violate those policies? When, as I just said, thousands of leftist accounts were shut down in the past few years. For, um, for a lot for less, too. For much less. For much, yeah. much less. Like, people who I know being, you know, and not suspended permanently, but, you know, in Twitter jail, as they say, for just, like, silly little <laughs> jokes that were, like, pretty obviously jokes. But, like, technically it could be read as such and such. And I seriously doubt that, like, Twitter investigated how the tweet was received when they decided, like... No. And again, like you said, like people saying that he's been deplatformed, like I'm pretty sure he has a press room in his place of residence. Like I'm pretty sure he's he has other ways to make himself heard. So, you know, Twitter is a a company. It's a choice. People choose to be on Twitter. And that's the other thing that kind of I mean, hypocrisy is like steeped into every everything that seems to happen on the right. But like, isn't this the market? Right. Like deciding to. You know, like if you're all about the free market, like we'll let the let the market decide what happens, right? Like let you know if if you're talking about using companies, and I guess I don't know if Twitter's public or a private company, but you know if you break the rules of using a thing that's not like officially sanctioned by the government and you get kicked off, that's no no worse than would happen to anybody else. So I it's just hard to like stomach people being like it's an injustice. Like is it really? Yeah. I mean, and just I wanted to add one thing to that. The response that you often get from conservatives or from people who are concerned about this when you make that argument is that, well, they're not just private companies like these are everyone uses these. We use these to communicate. And so they're they're more like public utilities, like they're something that we all kind of need to participate in society. And I think that's true to some extent, although I'm sure Alex would push back. But 
I think that's an argument for regulating them more heavily, right. for potentially even nationalizing them. That's not an argument for impunity right. uh, uh, to like spread dangerous lies. Right. Yeah. I mean, just to, to since uh, d my name was called, my name was called in that last comment. So I feel I have to respond. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I actually no, I agree with you, Calvin. I do think that they are used like public utilities, but I agree in the sense that like Michael Warner would say a public is constituted by mere attention and circulation. So Twitter is a public sphere as long as we pay attention to it and as long as we make it a public sphere. And I think that that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind, right? Because it doesn't sort of hold up Twitter as being this inevitable, like this is the public square now for all time and forever. You know, for a while, many of us thought that about Friendster and MySpace and other kinds of things like that. The difference with Twitter is that they actually learned how to make money and they actually learned how to like capture people and their attention in a, and keep them coming back, recirculating material, continuing to contribute their attention and their energy to it. And I think to play off of what Sophie was saying, too, I mean, this is, you know, when we think about this in terms of like the free market and, you know, this being a market based decision, I think it absolutely is. There were a lot of people who I saw saying, well, you know, this is too little too late. Why didn't it happen earlier? Why didn't they ban him for, you know, the myriad other TOS violations that he absolutely committed across his presidency? And to that, I would say we can look to this is also kind of one of the things that Calvin mentioned earlier about conservatives saying that big tech is run by liberals. No, the problem is not that big tech is run by liberals. The problem is that big tech is run by capitalists and they are they recognize libertarians. That, yes, often, yes. Libertarian capitalists yeah. who realize that they could make money off of having Donald Trump exactly. as as somebody who is literally putting their platform in the news every single day, mm -hmm. you are getting free publicity from the president of the United States being the most famous poster on your website. Why would you ever ban him until a week before right. he's going to be deposed, right? Like, it makes sense from a market standpoint why they're choosing to do it now. Absolutely. They just had, they had the perfect plausible deniability in order to do it. So, again, I think this is... I don't want to come out right away and say, you know, we we should treat Twitter like a public utility because I think that it's it's not more a matter of should or should. Well, I mean, I could make an argument for should not um, like I am very much a proponent of people logging off for reasons that I'm happy to get into. But Twitter is a public utility because we make it that way. And I think that that's an important thing to remember. Right. It is a public that is constituted by our attention. And Donald Trump largely was a product of that. You know, Twitter's architecture was very hospitable, to use uh, Jim Brown's term, to the kinds of discourse that Donald Trump was very good at producing. These sort of pithy statements of like absolute certitude, not very much hedging, just kind of like putting a claim out there. All caps. Uh, all caps. Exactly. Exactly. It was the kind of thing that was that was designed to go viral. It had, you know, as Rodolfo and DeVos, it had its rhetorical velocity sort of built into it. So, I mean, I think there was always this sort of like mutually beneficial relationship between Twitter and Trump. Their platform was always a useful way for him to get a message out. And, you know, for Twitter, it was I mean, it kind of goes back to the Les Moonves quote of like, Donald Trump may be bad for America, but he's great for CBS. He's great for Twitter, too. Yeah. So I think that it's it's best to read this decision as a risk calculation that was many years in the making. They had extracted as much profit as they could off of the persona of Donald Trump. 
and you know that that well has run dry now and so see i i feel like timing wise it's like all these other gop people being like all of a sudden i i resign like with like the clock ticking down to the last minute like i feel like twitter was probably loath to ban him honestly because he's such a, a money maker and so i think that like probably that decision was more so you know a calculation of like because there was a lot of of public outcry, right? There were a lot of people saying, like, you need to ban him. Especially, too, it's, you know, we can point to how many people on the left have been banned for, like, the most minor of infractions. So, so I think it's probably not something they wanted to do, but, like, if they were going to, based on the volume of, of pushback, that, like, waiting until the last minute and, like, the worst infraction, arguably, of his presidency to date... The timing makes sense and luckily for them it happened with just about a you know two weeks to spare but you wonder what's gonna happen after you know what i mean like yeah. donald trump president is banned is donald trump the human man banned and like i have a feeling we're gonna see him back on there i just don't know how it's yeah. gonna happen we'll have to see i mean but no i i agree sophie i think on the one hand yeah i think this was the least bad time for them financially to do it but i also think that it was a victory for the Twitter employees who petitioned. And I think, as I was saying, like anytime you deprive a massively powerful person of a propaganda network, that's a victory from, from my perspective. Twitter's stock took a massive hit after they did it. So this was not an easy thing for them to do. And I think it was, yeah, it was the level of outcry. It was, and there may even be data or analysis that they had access to that they haven't been able to make public that showed the extent to which, you know, these tweets were circulating in ways that were harmful or dangerous. But I did want to point out this glorification of violence policy that they have is very problematic. And I think that's somewhere that I think the left and people who are concerned about propaganda and especially about the circulation of war rhetoric online. I think that's somewhere for us to direct our attention going forward because under the glorification of violence policy, virtually every US politician in the mainstream who supports wars or the military budget, like these policies that do necessarily glorify violence and use their tweets to like build support for these policies, they're in violation of of that term of service. And so I think the idea that they just like apply the glorification of violence policy here and it made sense. It, like we need to critique that and ask why don't they apply that to even, you know, to, to other powerful actors who glorify other kinds of violence. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it goes to show there again that like, I mean, yeah, the policies themselves are drafted for selective disciplining, right? Like, I mean, there's, there's never like, yeah, somebody who brags about, you know, for example, you know, Trump bragging about the fact that his like nuclear button is so much bigger than Kim Jong Un, than Little Rocket Man's or whatever. Like, you're threatening genocide essentially, right. and that yeah, they should have shut his yeah, account yeah. down then. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But I mean, it's but I think it speaks to that larger point of like Twitter is fundamentally not going to make rules that are based on democratic or like defensible rhetorical ethics unless they are pushed to by tech workers as you know seemed to be the case this time or unless they i mean i don't know i mean the 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 platform itself to me seems so flawed and so like 
so difficult to remediate that it that I'm almost more an advocate for like we need to be considering and imagining different ways of building a public sphere or a, a public square even where we can exchange ideas with one another because Twitter and most other social media does not seem to be hospitable to a kind of like good democratic rhetorical ethics that really can cultivate like good communication practices if we're going to be prescriptive about it right like yeah. i mean i think that part of the, the the linkage that i see between social media particularly twitter and what happened on january 6th it was like twitter for me at least had you know for a long time been a kind of wish casting platform it was a place where i could i felt like i could go on there and vent about things that i didn't have any possibility to change and i feel like a lot of a lot of internet platforms are used in that way like this is what you know kind of the qAnon conspiracy kind of became about right like these people voted in a president who didn't look like he was doing what they wanted so they had to invent this sort of online fiction where they were wish casting all these things that they wanted him to do and what eventually came of that was you had all these extremely online people who you know who were literally at this rally you know talking about qAnon stuff like like saying that they were taking down this you know a, a cabal of like devil worshiping pedophiles and that that was where it culminated. That was where all this like online angst actually found its like release valve. And so I don't know. I mean, I am I, it, this might be like a, an extremely reductive take and I'm happy to be happy to be repudiated on its basis. But I mean, online sucks, man. <laughs> like like online is it's it's really bad and it's really toxic, I think, for the way that political culture is developing in the U.S. in the 21st century. Yeah. And I don't know if it can be remediated so long as it is an environment that is controlled completely by capitalist right. powers. Well, that's, the, you know, we're dealing with the same same sorts of issues when we think about the news industry, right? Like a for-profit yes. news industry yes. is going to amplify the most, you know, shocking, you know, clickbaity content. And then, you know, that's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy where it seemed like, you know, over the past four years, like the news itself became ever more outrageous and clickbaity. And it's not about the facts and it's not about... You know, I mean, there are, there are good quality news outlets out there. I don't mean to say that there are not. But, like, as a whole, right, the way we look at the quality of news we receive from a for-profit-driven industry is not what we would choose if, if it were publicly funded. And just like with social media, right, like, if, if people want to talk about Twitter as if it is sort of the marketplace of ideas, like a public forum, but then they're not going to make it so that everybody has the internet, or, or, you know, fund, you know, su support it as a public entity, like, then you're just, it's just all talk, and it's still going to be the same kind of garbage that we have today, and I assume we will continue to see. Yeah, no, I think the news media, just like social media, kind of reveals how Trump is a product of capitalism. He's a pure expression of capitalism. And there, there is kind of a canard on the far right that he's like anti-capitalist or he's somehow like, you know, fighting for the working I can't white man understand. Against, against, against the globalists, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. When, when, you know, he outsourced massive parts of the public, of the public sector to, to corporations and, you know, and, and just like further swampified the federal government. But yeah, it's an expression of capitalism. And I think it's important to remember that the internet, the reason we have the internet is because of public funding, is because of government funding. 
And I think that if, if there's going to be any sort of way of making online suck less, it probably is going to be about going back to the public sector, reforming the public sector, finding some way to bring public power to bear on these massive corporations, what that looks like and, you know, and how we do it without without creating so much pushback from conservatives that it gets even worse. I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to see. But I, I think those are questions that we'll have to answer at another time. On a future Absolutely. episode of Reverb. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> I was just going to say, if there's one thing that I hope that Reverb does this year, it is uh, abolish the Internet. Um, that is that is one thing, one goal that I have for our podcast in the new year. Yeah, it's 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 on it's on my uh, New Year's resolutions for, for this year. Was really going to um, be a boon to our our listenership. I think if we absolutely, sure no- <laughs> I, I did want to yes, mention exactly. that. Now, now Alex is, is is coming out hard against Twitter, but uh, Twitter users, please share our tweets about this episode. Uh, only follow Reverb. We're the only the Reverb good account, account on the good. website. Tweets about Reverb are good. Uh, just kind of cordon that, those off from all the other. <laughs> garbage that's right and uh please share yes but yeah thanks for joining me for this conversation sophie and alex it's been fun absolutely I think we got somewhere we had some disagreements some, some rhetorical some rhetorical listening occurred Indeed. and um first episode of the new that. year right this is the first, first, yeah, episode, of the first episode of the new year bring it in with a happy absolutely uh, happy-go-lucky topic <laughs> Like, I mean, our our our, our first yeah. episode of of last year was a rejoinder against the impending war with Iran. So, I mean, it's hard to tell whether or not we're starting in a in a better place. We like to keep it light. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the main we're thing. Sticking to tradition here, that's Reverb. right. So, thanks for joining us, everyone, and uh, until next time. Bye bye, everybody. Bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Calvin Pollock, Alex Helberg, and Sophie Wadzak. Reverb's co-producer is Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for listening.